0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. I have two pieces of
1: personal news. One is, today is Leap Day, so happy Leap Day. We won't see you in another four years, until four years. Um, And the second thing is, for many Christians, this is the beginning of Lent Mm -hmm. this past week, and I decided to take on a practice. Many, many people do that. Last year I gave up singing for Lent. This year, I decided to give up reading the complete Greek New Testament for Lent. You're because, such a nerd. <laughs> because that is something that brings me so much joy. And part of what I, my theory is, you shouldn't give up something like bad for Lent because it'll come back at Easter, and you're supposed to take whatever it is. It's like a fast. You bring it back and use whatever it is to celebrate at Easter time. So here's what I've done. I've actually taken my Greek New Testament, or one of them, and I literally put a post-it note over the last page of Revelation so that I can't finish reading the Greek New Testament. And then I will pull it off on Easter and read the end of it, and I'll be so happy.
0: So first of all, you're going to read the whole New Testament in 40 days. Yes.
1: Yeah. Between now and Easter, I will read it and then be so happy when I...
0: Complete it. Wow. Um. (laughs) Okay, commendable, Derek, because I do know that is something you legitimately enjoy just every now and again, even though... Even though I am your friend, just <laughs> wait. That's... I, I'm I'm just I'm just shocked that this is something you legitimately get so much joy and not a, It's not a slog for you, man. It's yeah, like well. you're like that kid in elementary school that liked eating the vegetables. You know what I'm saying? No. <laughs> like that's what you remind me of. Nobody wanted to eat the vegetables, but you like want to eat all the vegetables. In fact, you enjoy. They're your favorite part. I know. And you know that's both. I mean that I can only see that as a blessing. Like. I don't see the curse in that at all, actually. And I think what happened is there's so much
1: culturally, not just in our church, but others, that culturally sets people up for failure with the scriptures. It's not done in a way that's life-giving. It's done as a chore. But when you actually break open the text and see how it changes people's lives and brings hope and empower mm-hmm. to marginalized people, especially, you're like, wow, that's in there? This is so radical that yeah. our government would forbid it if they knew what it said about them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that sounded weird, but you get what I'm talking about. There's a lot, yeah, I of, got you. a lot of stuff in there that this is right. And literally governments have uh, banned the Bible. Yes, Even have. in Europe, people said, no, we're going to prevent this from being translated into the language of the people because we don't yeah. want them to read it. And like right. William Tyndall died because he translated the Bible into English. Mm-hmm. I'm like, think about that. How radical that message must be if the powers that be want it not to be there.
0: It's very interesting because when we start ca- talking about the Come Follow Me, we're actually going to talk a little bit about accessibility to the Word of God yeah. and what a powerful okay. tool that is. But uh, yeah, thank you for thank you for sharing that. So that's that. all I had All right, my personal news. Okay, I'm trying to think. Do I have anything going on in my life? And the answer is probably no. I spent all week working on a narrating gig that I'm regretting taking in the first place. I thought I would broaden my horizons by doing an audiobook on herbal medicine, you know? <laughs> okay. Because, you know, I know nothing about it. It sounded really interesting to me. I read the audition uh-huh. manuscript. I ended up getting the gig, and I was like, this sounds interesting. I think I would like to read this book. And uh, I started reading the book, but it turns out the part that I had read for the audition was primarily the preface. They didn't tell me that the rest of the book was going to be basically a cookbook, but for er- herbal medicine. It was so mm. boring. All I did was read, like, descriptions for hundreds of plants you know what i'm saying and just reading, i would love hearing your voice describe plants to me Bruh, like i hated reading it just it was such <laughs> a slog like here's the thing there were so many words in that book i didn't know like i you know i'm relatively educated like i have a bachelor's yeah. degree and you know i've always at least in my adult life, enjoyed reading, but there were so many words in that book I didn't know, so many science words, so many, yeah. like, you had to read, like, oh, this is hemp of the family of such and such, and I'm just like, R- there are so many words that ended in asia or issei or something like that, and I'm just <laughs> like, and the worst part was, I tried to go on the dictionary.com website or Merriam-Webster, they didn't have these words. Oh. like I tried looking these words up, and they didn't have the words, and further, like, further, a lot of the, there was like poor grammar, there was bad spelling. I had to go back to like the publisher, be like, I need y'all to revise this if you want me to read it, or if you want me to edit it, you need to pay me more. And I was just, it was just such a slog, man. I hated doing it. I'm never reading another book like that again. So, you know, I, okay. I, I really have enjoyed moving into this new world of uh, narrating audiobooks, but just the one time I j- decide to be adventurous, it Oops. just backfires and it's rough. Anyway, I know so much about herbal medicine now. And I know how to pronounce mm-hmm. so many family names of plants. So I did gain that. Wow. And of course they pay me to do it. So, so cool. well Did they talk about all these essential oils people? No, they did not. Okay. In fact they even kind of like self-deprecated a little bit and being like, you should probably go to the doctor for most of this. But for those of you guys who want to have <laughs> a more natural alternative, like this is what you can do. So um they didn't get all into the pseudoscience of like essential oils, but I'd be lying if they said they didn't mention them at all. Because uh, part of the cookbook, part of the book was them talking about formulas of essential oils you can, like, mix with the plants and how you can, like, ground them up in mortars and make all these remedies. A lot, There are a lot of ways to make expectorants, bruh. Like, oh. I never knew there were so many ways and so many things in nature you could use to make expectorants with. And that's more useless knowledge I have now. Hopefully we never get to the point where if this corona- coronavirus thing really gets out of hand, that we have to bug out or bug in to the point where <laughs> I'm like picking plants. And I'm like, oh, I know what that is. We can use that for an expectorant or, an, or a poultice <laughs> or, a, or a medicine or something like that. Oh, just. No. But for now, the knowledge is relatively useless. So that, that's been my week. Wow. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Sounds like fun. We got we got some stuff to talk about. Like I know we wanted to save the majority of our time today for the come follow me, so let's just uh, go through this news right quick. Um so so the big or I guess the biggest piece of news. We we still have some spillover from uh the honor code and the honor code change and uh, the handbook updates. There's still some pour over from that. But the newest thing this week has been the Statements the church has released on the coronavirus Derek. You want to talk about that real quick? So
1: we've got a number of changes coming up there are uh, They've asked people not from the US not to travel to general conference in April They've also I think moved missionaries out of certain areas closed down certain missions They've closed down certain temples temporarily and they've asked people in certain regions to meet at home rather than gathering for sacrament meeting mm. I don't remember all the details about which areas were involved, but my one thought on that was they are using the latest science and believing the scientists on these issues, the medical professionals who are experts on this area. I'm wondering, like, why don't we do that as a people with our transgender siblings? Ooh. Like, within weeks of this coronavirus thing, we've got our leaders making making solid business decisions. I don't know if it's th- it gonna be the, it's kind of better safe than sorry right? risk aversion thing. But let's talk about this. People's lives will be lost if we don't, if we don't make the right decision for our trans siblings. And like, yep. we've got decades of peer-reviewed science, all the major medical, psychological, and psychiatric organizations overwhelmingly support transition related care as a life-saving medical practice like this is mm-hmm. the standard of care yeah and why don't we believe them
0: why don't that's we all i them? have to say on that <laughs> that's probably all you need to like that's that's a very fair question Derek. i'm glad you brought it up and made that connection it's one of the reasons i'm so glad you're here you think about this stuff like obviously me not occupying that space i didn't think about that at all i just i was just like hey the church has a statement on coronavirus they're getting ahead of this you know they're believing the science that's great but you're totally right like if they can believe the science for the coronavirus why can't they believe the science the decades of peer reviewed science like mm-hmm. you said for our transgender siblings like lives are literally right. being lost and
1: i think it's probably a privilege issue because anyone can get coronavirus right this not is something anyone that directly affects yes, them yes it could affect their life and they're yes. going to make the right decision because if they don't it could reach them or someone yes. they love very close to them and our 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 trans siblings like they're not in a position of leadership in our church mm-hmm. and their voices are only beginning to be heard. And I'm like, yeah, this is,
0: this is real. So yeah, that's how privilege works. That's exactly how it works. It's a problem for us. So it's a problem for everybody, but if it's not a problem for us, then we're not going to worry about it. Yeah. All right. So uh, that's that. Let's move on to, oh, okay. So first off, black history month is ending like, February 29th right now as we're recording this. Black mm-hmm. History Month is ending and it has been a bit of a mess. Um, a lot has happened this month. Just in this last week, we lost Jeanette Dubois. We lost Esther Scott, both legends on TV known for uh, Good Times, movies like You Got Served and, uh, and The Jefferson's Theme, respectively. Just a lot going on there. We also lost The rising rap star Pop Smoke to a murder. We lost B. Smith to uh, early onset Alzheimer's. We also had Kobe's memorial this last week. There was just a lot, a lot, a lot of mourning that happened this past week. Not to mention the earlier issues we had in the month at BYU with the uh, black and immigrant panel. The subsequent response to that by some um, hurt white people as well as you know there's just been a lot happening the the point is the last 3 black history months in particular we've spent a lot more time mourning and defending our humanity than celebrating and that is something that has just kind of been the theme of black history month for the last little while i hope that i hope that changes in the future i don't know that it will But so long as, uh, you know, racism exists, so long as we're trying to advance these conversations in spaces that are not predominantly dominated by people that look like me, there is going to be that issue. But uh, hopefully we become better at navigating this conversation. So, yeah, Black History Month is ending but do take in the future a more proactive approach to learning black history, learning more about anti-racism work, and learning more about the place of the gospel of Jesus Christ in abolishing prejudice and abolishing institutional racism and in uh, confronting and addressing it in your own congregations, in your own families.
1: Right. I just want to add that black history is appropriate
0: and valid every month. Absolutely. And we get the shortest month of the year. One day longer this year because, you know, leap year, but whatevs. <laughs> also, um, other thing we wanted to talk about briefly was this incident that happened in Lake Town, Utah, Rich Middle School. You hear about this, Derek? I did hear about it. All right. I so, just read one news article about it, so I don't know everything
1: and all the reactions and fallout, but yeah, yeah. I heard about
0: that. I saw a couple. There was, okay. What had happened was a young lady went to a middle school dance for Valentine's Day. She declined dancing with a boy that made her uncomfortable, and apparently the principal still made her dance with him. The principal stood by the policy when the girl's mother complained, and this is what he said. This is what, like, really got to me in this article. He said, We do ask all the students to dance. It is the nice thing to do, and this will continue to be our policy. There have been similar situations in the past where some students have felt uncomfortable with others, and as stated prior, the issues were discreetly handled. This allowed all students to feel welcome, comfortable, safe, and included. So, like, I I don't even know where to begin with this, man. Like, there is so much to unpack just in that that little response letter that this uh, principal wrote to this girl's mom. He really just said... It's the nice thing to do when talking about a girl, a girl's decision to dance with a young man, like as if a young man's feelings are more important than this girl's freedom and autonomy. This young lady is being taught at school that other people's feelings are more important than her own, than her own freedom, than her own autonomy. Mm -hmm. And this to me is one of the biggest reasons we need Women's History Month, which is going to be all through all the month of March. It's because we still have a problem as a nation, as a world with really valuing women as people, with really with really respecting their freedom, respecting their contribution, respecting their autonomy, just in general, respecting this radical idea that women are equal to men. And um, this is just a casual reminder that there's a long ways to go here. Long ways to go. Right. And it not only there's
1: the message that it sends to the young girl, but there's also the message that it sends to all the boys in the school yeah. that they are entitled to women's bodies and time yeah. and interest, yeah. which is not at all a safe message to be telling young boys. Mm-hmm.
0: It's one reason I hate daytime talk shows so much. I don't know if you were ever into this when you were younger, Derek, but I used to watch like Montel, Maury and Jenny Jones all the time. When No, I was not younger. really. There was something they always did on those shows that really, really got to me. They would always do these uh, makeover shows where they would like take this girl who was like an ugly duckling in middle school or high school and then make her over as an adult. And what they would do next really, really got me. They would always have this dude on the show that like bullied her in middle school or high school. And then they would parade the madeover woman in front of this guy as if to like say, look what you could have had if you were just nice to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just. It was the most i remember seeing that as like a 10 11 year old who was staying home sick from school and being like okay i be nice to girls they'll give me their bodies you know that kind of thing just there's this entitlement that we're teaching men to like be entitled to people's bodies and also to be nice to girls and get their bodies or whatever but just i feel like that messaging is all over the place and it's been all over the place since we were young just this idea that men somehow have an entitlement to women's bodies just because they're there or just because we're nice to them or just because we're not mean to them. yeah Like, I can't, like, I just really can't stand it and I really can't, like, I'm just thinking about me being young and seeing that and just seeing how little progress we've made because that was like 20 years ago. You know, I'm a grown man now and I'm still seeing that this is messaging that we are giving to young ladies and it really needs to stop.
1: Yeah, and, I used to think, well, we've got to teach all these men about consent and it's this, you know, big but, but but here's my theory is they they automatically and natively understand consent when you bring in a gay dude into the mix. <laughs> yep. Like because if you imagine a gay dude doing to them what they're doing to women, they would immediately say, "No, that's that's obviously wrong. I I shouldn't have to say n- no. I shouldn't it shouldn't be, you know, just because I was dressed this way doesn't mean you can touch me. Like everything that they are saying they would they would completely realize the how flawed it is if they tried to use those same things with uh the flip and them being the object of affection or attention mm-hmm. by a gay dude. I'm like no, they know they know exactly that they don't, you know. Well, anyway. <laughs>
0: Sounds good, man. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that point in. That is all I have for news, so I'm excited to get into all three chapters of this Come, Follow Me. I know there's a lot we want to discuss with it. Are you ready for the Come, Follow Me, Derek? I am ready. All right. Before we get there, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts to promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So we are at the end of Nephi's writings. We are in Second Nephi chapter thirty-one. Sorry, chapters thirty-one through thirty-three. Just three chapters here, but there is a lot that is worth uh that is worth going through. Um are you gonna say anything about second Nephi thirty
1: one? I want to talk about three sort of introductory points to this whole thing. All right. Number one is an issue of genre because that is one of the most key things when you're interpreting the scriptures is to figure out, well, what kind of literature is this? Okay. And in this case, what we have is revival literature. And that's exactly how it landed in the Second Great Awakening era in the 19th century is, you know, restoring people to Christ, getting people to change over their life completely to christ repentance literature this is really how it landed in the 19th century and because of its character as revival literature you have to understand that it's going to be using some black and white thinking it's going to be using some very passionate um very bold phrasing it may not have a lot of nuance Uh, And just understanding that that and it may not answer all the questions you want, because that's not the goal of this type of sermon. Mm -hmm. It's it's like a camp revival meeting type thing of he's at the end of his life wanting to pass on something, wanting to have this last effort to really bring people around to Christ. And so we have to take that in it in its context. The second thing I want to say is you're
0: talking about this sermon as revival literature, not the whole of the Book of Mormon. (laughs)
1: Not the whole of the Book of Mormon, even though that all of it kind of feeds into that as well, because the whole the Book of Mormon as a whole is is trying to get people to believe in Christ as well. Yeah. So it's it all kind of ties together, but especially this one. At the end of his life, he's got one last chance to make an impact on the rest of the world. The second point I wanted to make is that Nephi is not the hero of the story. Christ is. And a lot of people want to look at the earlier chapters in Nephi's journal here and say look at what Nephi did we should imitate him and he's the the end of it all and like no he's actually just pointing us all to Christ and Nephi is going to be flawed and he's going to have certain things that that's not going to be how God works with everyone God works with every one of us as individuals and it's all supposed to. And I love how Nephi does that. He deflects away from himself and towards Christ, which is what the best of prophets do. Yeah. And the third point I want to make is that Nephi is this is one that Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh points out is that Nephi is speaking from a lifetime of trauma. Mm. And that's the other reason that we may see some like black and white thinking in his in his uh, text here. And there's something that we learn from from social dynamics is that hurt people hurt people. And he may not um, predict or know all of the consequences of everything that he's saying, but he's doing his best effort based on his limitations. And he admits his own weaknesses, too. He does. Um, and he's doing his best to bring people to Christ in an almost desperate manner, and I think that yeah. needs to be, to be named that he's... He's speaking from a lifetime of, of trauma here And that's real And we need to To couch that Everything that he says Within that framework And say well why Why is he saying it this way mm. And where that gets me is Impacts us is Some people think Without really knowing us That we are coming from a place of pain And anger And just wrath against the church tra- I'm, I'm one of the most loyal people I, I chose to be here You did You know, I am, I am, uh, I don't, I'm surprised that people, I have never on this podcast once said anything from, from a place of pain or anger. Mm -hmm. Never. I mean, and where I want to, want to get that is that, that I, I'm coming from a place of love and hope and loyalty, loyalty to the gospel, loyalty to the church. And what I'm reminded of is what Nadia Boltz Weber said. She's a Lutheran. Uh, Lutheran pastor she says Preach from your scars Not your wounds Mm. Because if you preach From your wounds you will rope People into all this raw Emotion and and It may not end up With the effect that you had Intended it may cause more Pushback or hostility but if Mm. You preach from your scars Like I have overcome this And now I have healed and now I'm ready to talk about this Mm. That's where I'm coming from with especially on on LGBTQ issues is I'm coming from a place of I'm not preaching from my wounds. I'm preaching from my scars. Mm. And I think that's kind of where I wanted to set us up for talking about Nephi.
0: Great. That's a great thank you for sharing that. And thank you for uh, setting that stage for us, because that's really going to, I feel, really clarify and contextualize exactly why nephi is sharing what he's sharing with us and perhaps help us understand it in a different way why like exactly what he's sharing with us and perhaps even some of the words that we've been reading from him earlier in second right nephi. right yes uh definitely want to get to that so um i do have something for the very beginning of second nephi 31 i don't know if you have anything uh that you want to share there before you proceed but i do have something for these first few verses okay go ahead Thank you. So what I really like about chapter 31 is that the doctrine of Christ is set forth plainly and specifically enough. Uh, I broke out my old pair of missionary scriptures because I knew I would have something marked with regard to the doctrine of Christ in this chapter. And I noticed that everything I had highlighted throughout this entire chapter was something that referred to the doctrine of Christ. Um, And we're told that we must have faith, that we must repent, that we must be baptized, that we must receive the Holy Ghost, and we must endure to the end. He talks about, in verses uh, 2 and 3, he talks about plainness again. And I've really, I I typically don't like that word coming from Nephi's mouth, because when last time Nephi talks about plainness, he's talking about the words of Isaiah, and those words are anything but plain to me, you know what I'm saying? But... Something that I think he wants us to understand about plainness is uh, made clear at the end of verse 3. I'm just going to read it real quick. My soul delighteth in plainness, for after this manner doth the Lord God work among the children of men. For the Lord God giveth light unto the understanding, for he speaketh unto men according to their language unto their understanding. So whoever you are, the way way this reads to me is that whoever you are, wherever you're from— however much education you have or where you're at in your spiritual journey, God can speak to you in a way that you can understand. In other words, God's words aren't plain because they're easy to understand or because they're readable or because they're made. Like God, God's words are plain because they are accessible. And I really like what you said about William Tyndall earlier because he gave common people access to the words of God. And this is something that Nephi is glorying in. He's glorying in plainness. He's glorying in the Lord making his will and his teachings known to him because he's doing it in a way that Nephi can understand. That doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be easy for us to understand. But that's also not to say that the Lord won't do the same for us. In fact, that's kind of the promise here, or that's kind of what we can gain from reading this verse. It's what he says. He speaks unto men according to their language and according to their understanding. So the Lord can do the same for all of us. He can speak to us no matter who we are, no matter what kind of history or education we got. All of us are entitled to access to the words of God. Mm-hmm.
1: And I love how um, Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh connects the plainness with the speaking in their language according to their understanding because it's, like you said, tailored to what Nephi Yes. His own language and understanding mm-hmm. so it's gonna be plain to him But what he got might not be plain to other people who have a different language and different understanding ah, yeah, and For example a lot of people think that the law of chastity is plain or that they think teachings around gender or Gender roles or women is yeah. like that it has to be plain But it may be plain to you because of your limitations and your understanding and line upon line but when God speaks to those on the margins, it's going to be plain to us. It's going to be obvious to us that that we fit in and right. that there's a place for us. And right. that needs to be named that the plainness isn't really transferable. Because what's plain to Nephi or what's plain to me might not be plain to Nephi if he doesn't have the same understanding and language that I do. Okay, gotcha. Right? And so they might think something is plain and they might think God's will is clear. But there's limitations involved.
0: Yes. And, and so it's. So like you're saying those words are playing to Nephi. Just because they're playing to Nephi doesn't mean right, they're going be to be to right
1: Just because some, for, for example, what he says about um, the Lamanites, that's probably yeah. playing to him. But it's not going to be plain to the Nephi, um, to the Lamanites, because right. they're going to have a different experience of God. And, right, and one right. that could even be more righteous as mm-hmm. we get into later. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I, the caution is. This this plainness is very much individualized and it might not be transferable. It might not be universal. Uh, well, it is universal in the sense that God is going to speak to you plainly. Right. But right. it might be in a different word and a, than to someone else. And what okay. God said to the other person might not be plain to you. Mm. That's
0: kind of where I was going with that. OK, sweet. Thank you for sharing. it's not transferable. That yeah, is, that is a, that is so important.
1: And one of the thing is things about this is when you look as, when you read the Bible in the King James it almost sounds like it's all written in one style because that English is so different from ours uh-huh. but when you read it in the Hebrew and Greek you realize you've got very very different literary styles vocabulary styles syntax styles it's just very different God is speaking through humans and there's gonna be human fingerprints all over the scriptures okay and I want to tie this in just briefly with what I said last week about the three windows and the realistic approach to Revelation is that there's going to be a little bit of our reflection in the, in the scriptures that we write for right. we're a prophet. Right. And it's, it's going to be according to you know, what line we're on because it's line upon line like, did you do your homework? Did you study it out in your mind? Did you ask the right questions? God isn't, doesn't treat us as robots, but there's going to be some subjectivity and personal influence into what a revelator gets from God. Right. And people might think that this is sort of weird, but my position that I'm staying right here is the absolute orthodox Latter-day Saint position. If you look at all of our scriptures, all of the words of our prophets, and you take them as a whole, you realize that this is what we've always been saying. If you look at the, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, modern prophets... They're all saying that this inspiration has an element of subjectivity and and negotiation in it. It's not just dictated, plopped down from God. Right. And so I don't think our position should be criticized based on it's somehow liberal or not orthodox. Because that is the orthodox position, is that God and humans meet together. Mm -hmm. And through a creative, inspirational process, we work out what we best think God is trying to say in our, uh, according to our language and understanding, and that's what becomes our scriptures. It's not going to be perfect. We're not fundamentalists. And so my position here is the, the orthodox one. And I also want to notice that um, this other idea that, that God just plops down something fully clear and fully obvious and fully final and eternal um, without flaw is, is really cultural and f- it's it's folklore in our tradition. It's not actually in our sources anywhere. Mm. Um, and I liked how Nephi at the end of this concludes by reminding us of his weakness in Second Nephi thirty three eleven. You and I shall stand face to face before his bar. This is the judgment bar, and ye shall know that I Nephi have been commanded of him to write these things, notwithstanding. My weakness so even he's, he's saying I'm doing my best job at the last minute talk about procrastination <laughs> I'm doing my best job here at the final hours trying to put down as best as I can something, but it's going to have weaknesses in it hmm and uh, So that's where I'm just gonna leave that for now.
0: All right, then I'd like to pick this up again talk a little bit more about uh, Nephi's weakness because uh, I think in the context of second Nephi 5 in particular after reading verses one through four, I have a little bit more empathy for Nephi, I guess, um, because this is something that he went ahead and named. He talked about his weakness. He still, at this point, doesn't know why he's writing this record, except that the Lord has commanded him to do so. Like he doesn't know who's going to see it. He doesn't know, you know, he he doesn't know the destiny of these words he's writing. And secondly, he tells us he doesn't even he. What what are the words? Hold up. Let me just pull this up real quick. Okay, he says, Neither am I mighty in writing like unto speaking, for when a man speaketh by the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it to the hearts of the children of men. Nephi's letting us know this isn't the way he wants us to this isn't the way he wants us to feel to hear his story. Like this isn't the way that um this isn't ideal for him and he's not that good at writing, I guess. So like he that, that kind of contextualizes a little bit for me what he what what might he have meant when he said what he wrote in Second Nephi five, you know what I'm saying? Like, if he had been able to sit down with us face to face and have the conversation with us that he was trying to have in Second Nephi five, mm-hmm. would it had would it have hit different? You know what I'm saying? It might have. It might have like maybe the spirit would have carried a different message to our hearts rather than one that seems to give us all these conflicted emotions about Nephi or about the Book of Mormon in general or about the Mormon church in general. Like there is a lot that we might be losing simply because Nephi is sharing something with us in a way that he doesn't even want to share it with us. Like Nephi strikes me as the kind of person that if he were alive today, if you tried sending him a text message, he'd be like, just come over. We'll talk it out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Like he yeah. probably hates texting. He probably would much rather sit down and have a conversation, you know, back and forth because if he had said those words that he had said in second Nephi five, we could interrupt and ask some questions. Right. we could right. be like, what, what did you mean by that? Nephi? What right. were you trying to say? Uh, you know, like there is, and there's more, there's more in chapter, there's more in verse three that contextualizes where he may have been coming from when Mm -hmm. he, uh, when he wrote these words, he says, um, oh, actually I should probably read this bit in verse two first that, uh, gives me a little more empathy for Nephi. He says, there are many that harden their hearts against the Holy spirit that it hath no place in them. Wherefore they cast many things away, which are written and esteem them as things of naught." There are a lot of people who are willing to throw the whole Book of Mormon away just because of what is written in 2 Nephi chapter 5. And that's really unfortunate because, again, what Nephi is telling us here is that, as you said, he's doing the best that he can. This is the best he knew how to write with and, um, you know, just... Again, he's just doing the best he can with what he's got at that particular time. Right. And it's really unfortunate that somebody would throw away the entirety of his words that testify of Christ just because of what he wrote in 2 Nephi 5. But I want to use verse 3 to contextualize what he may have written there as well. He said, I have written what I have written, and I esteem it as of great worth, and especially unto my people. For I pray continually for them by day, and mine eyes water my pillow by night because of them. And I cry unto my God in faith, and I know that he will hear my cry. So we got to acknowledge that in verse three, as well as the rest of verse uh, of the rest of chapter 33. And you've already brought this up a little bit, Derek, talks about the love that Nephi has for his family, for his people. Like he seems to. He seems to really love his people a lot. And when you go back and you read second Nephi five in that context, the words that he used to describe the Lamanites are in the context of what they wanted to do to his people. Mm -hmm. Like the Lamanites wanted Mm -hmm. to extinguish his people. I know that me, myself, I've probably thought awful things about white people once or twice or a bajillion times because (laughs) of, you know, because of, you know, how I viewed my relationship to them. You know what I'm saying? Just, Mm -hmm. I would be lying if I say I didn't occasionally view white people as less than because of their racism or because of their mm-hmm. seeming intent on just extinguishing black people. Like I felt at times that, black, that white people just wanted black people gone, that they just wanted us dead or that they just wanted to have nothing to do with us. And I know in those moments, I've thought less than kind things, less than human things about my uh, white brothers and sisters. And I feel that if we are going to read racism or prejudice into the text of 2 Nephi 5, we have to read it with that lens. Nephi is perhaps really just being ride or die for his own people. He's probably just being ride or die for his family. Like, Mm -hmm. if you are going to threaten the existence of my people, then you know you are probably less than human, you know what I'm saying? And I'm going to try to read that into 2 Nephi 5 if we are going to read Second Nephi 5 through the lens of a prejudice that Nephi has.
1: Yeah, and what you were saying about your approach to white people reminds me a lot of the wisdom of what Nadia Boltz-Weber said mm. about preach from your scars, not, not your wounds. wounds. Yeah, So you preach from your scar, which means you don't cover up the fact that the injury happened. Right. You don't ignore it and erase it and just pretend it's not there. Right, But if you come to white people with... With that framework, mm-hmm. it will be a very different effect than if you come out of the place of in the middle of the wound. Yeah. Not to police anyone's emotions or strategies course, or anything like that. Of course. But just in terms of what the outcome will be, there's going to be a white person with feelings on the other end, mm-hmm. and we're going to have to live together, right? And so mm-hmm. it's a matter of... of. Uh, not continuing this see part of what it is is it's not continuing the cycle of of retaliation and oppression and and the idea of like what's so is so common is once an oppressed people gets power they end up doing the same thing to someone else right and um, to stop that cycle that's where we we preach from our scars yeah
0: yeah thank you for bringing that up again like that was one of the first things I thought of when you said preach from your wounds not from your scars I was like that's probably what nephi might have been doing in second nephi five yeah he, he was in
1: the middle two. of like he was i think that was he had it fresh in his mind running away from the Lamanites right. who are about to kill him and that, then he that wrote was those.
0: the same chapter as the separation i believe yeah same chapter so uh yeah that's that's all i want to th- i think that's all i want to say about those verses i didn't say much about verse four except because like i think you've already highlighted it this is nephi again letting people know his weakness um in, in in writing and I think that's important to name and considering why Nephi wrote some of the things that he did and why they might might be hitting us in a way that is less than that is less than pleasant
1: right and I think talking about our, our uh, relations with our neighbor I want to move on to second Nephi 31 verse 20 which I'm gonna read here for you all right it says Well, let me go back up and talk for a little bit in verse 19 Um, And now my beloved brethren after ye have gotten into the straight and narrow path I would ask if all is done behold. I say to you nay for ye have not come this far save it were by the word of Christ With unshaken faith in him relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save We have a lot of protestant friends who tell us. Oh, we believe that we save ourselves. No He's saying look we don't get anywhere save it were by the word of christ what christ has done and relying only on the merits of christ to save not on our own merits right and that's why he goes on in verse 20 to say wherefore you must press forward with a steadfastness in christ having a perfect brightness of hope i'll come back to that word hope in a bit and a love of god and of all men wherefore if ye shall press forward feasting upon the word of christ and endure to the end Behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. I want to talk a little bit about this love of God and of neighbor here. Which All right. Um, there's something that, that's taught very prominently in the New Testament, especially in James chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 4, about your love for your neighbor is a, a gauge of your love for the neighbor that you can see is a gauge of your status with a God that you cannot see mm. because you can't love, you can't hate your neighbor and claim that you love God. That's right. not how it works. Right. Those are really inseparable here. And what I want to say about this is that this is kind of something I've been thinking about what love means. A lot of people think love is this like, oh, I just, it's an, a it's an attitude or an affection, but here's what I want to say about love is that if you love something or someone you'll if you love something you'll be willing to be surprised by it and let me can you say more about yeah. that yeah okay thank you okay you're gonna regret asking me to
0: say more okay just i'm I'm very curious just if you just, love if I need you more.
1: love something for example if when you when you marry someone on your wedding day you're you're not saying oh we're we're done. You have a whole life ahead of you, and you're willing to, to grow into that and be surprised by that person, and mm-hmm. and you know you're not going to know everything. It's not just some pretty little box that sits on the shelf, and you're like, oh, we're done with that. I know everything about that person. I'm going to be fully comfortable with everything. If you right. love someone or something, you'll be willing to be surprised by them, and I think the best example of this in the New Testament is the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 where the father is willing to be surprised by the son when he returns like wow mm-hmm. he's back like i i'm gonna like step forward into this with hope into this new relationship that's now restored the older brother was not willing to be surprised he's like nope that's the same old person he's he's a bad whatever he doesn't deserve to come back he wasted all of our money and and he's he's not willing to, to update his beliefs mm. and i think this is really true about the scriptures. Like I love being surprised by things I see in the New Testament. If I'm not willing to be surprised, my relationship is over, I mm. think. And it's it, this is true. Like if you truly love your kids, you're going to be willing to be surprised by them. Mm. They may t- turn out to be LGBTQ. They may turn out to be, well, you wanted your kid to be a farmer and now they're going to be an artist. Like mm. If you truly love your kids and that's how God treats us the whole gift of agency is one of saying Oh look, I'm gonna set you here and I'm willing to be surprised by what you do mm. Because without agency we'd, we would be robots and there would be no surprises for God mm. and I think this is very relevant to what's happening at BYU There are some people at BYU who are saying I am not willing to be surprised with where the spirit is moving the church in terms of the honor code today Mm. and they want to keep it the same and they're like nope i'm stuck in this wooden understanding of doctrine and policy that's unchanging and and they have this this immediate pushback against against surprise right and i i think it's really tragic that many people in the church are unwilling to be surprised look there's people who in the church say almost everyone in the church will say we love lgbt's okay but most of those people aren't willing to be surprised by us they should be su- surprised, I mean, by by converts who, who are LGBT and want to passionately join the church. And they're like, they didn't think that that could happen. And like, why aren't they willing to be, to accept that surprise? Mm.
0: And that's kind of, what do you think about all these things? I love them, obviously, Derek. Like, and I have nothing else to add, but I just love what you... I just love the way you put that. We have to be willing to be surprised. Like, that is such a cool and poetic idea. Like, you're full of poetry, Derek. It's one of my favorite things about you. I should write more poetry. (laughs) But, like, I just really like this idea or like this way of looking at it that you can be like, you can't say that you love someone unless you're willing to be surprised by them. And this is the whole idea behind Christ's relationship or, sorry, God's relationship with us. Is that he gives us permission to surprise him, and he loves us through all of it. One of the only things I could understand in the Isaiah chapters, um, I think it's in First Nephi or sorry, Second Nephi nineteen, where there's that recurring phrase, despite all of it, his arm is stretched out still. Yes, and I think that is just such a beautiful thing that, in spite of it's like no matter what we do, no matter how many times we sin, no matter how many, well, just no matter it's just that no matter what we do, the Lord is willing to be reconciled to us. Mm -hmm. And that is super important to us as members of the church to remember both on the receiving end of that grace and also as being people who need to extend that grace to other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, I I really like that idea because it's a godly one. It is a divine one. I believe that embracing this idea is essential for our exaltation because it is because it's who God is. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I really like it. Um, so if there's nothing else there, I was going to talk about Okay. So there's something that hit me kind of weird in the Come Follow Me manual or it hits me weird now because you talked about needing to be careful in embracing this particular text. So you'll you'll see what I mean when I read these verses. Mm-hmm. This is uh 2 Nephi chapter 32 verses three and five in particular. And it's because of how these verses end. Now, they're both beautiful verses and they're both encouraging verses. It says, angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. Wherefore I said unto you, feast upon the words of Christ, for behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what ye should do. And then in verse five, similar thing. Again, I say unto you, that if you will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show unto you all things what ye should do. Now, I I sensed there was a little bit... I, I sensed that these verses may have been the reason that you said that we needed to approach these last three verses with caution because there's a lot of black and white language in here. And, uh, you know, when I read these in the Come Follow Me, they hit me a little weird, but I didn't know why until you articulated that thought, Derek. So, like... There's a lot of comfort to be taken in these words, but also there's some pressure in there. You know what I'm saying? Many of us who wrestle with some big questions about our faith or some big questions in general, we still don't have answers. You know what I'm saying? And I don't want people to be mm-hmm. using you know, these verses as a spiritual barometer of sorts to say, because I don't have answers, I must not be totally in tune with the spirit. But that is that's everybody even Nephi himself he didn't have all the answers there was times when he had to act in faith you know what I'm saying and there's people now especially our trans uh, especially our trans siblings who still don't have answers Mm -hmm. but they are nonetheless moving forward in faith and the fact that they don't have all the answers with regard to their place in the plan of salvation or their place in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints this doesn't mean that they're not spiritually in tune because you can still be spiritually in tune, you can still feast upon the words of Christ, you can, and, and still not have all the answers. You know what I'm saying? Exactly,
1: and that's where it gets back into this key um, realization about genre, because yeah. of the type of, of literature that he's writing here, there's going to be exaggeration, there's going to be hyperbole, there's going to be very strong statements of uh, that come out of his passion, and it may not be fully nuanced the exceptions may not be delineated that's not what we're here for right in this type of genre and i you're going to get some of this very concrete language of like i've got it all figured out and this is the way it is and these are the steps you have to do to be saved and there's it's all laid out so plainly i should i hate to say <laughs> but it's it's plain to him because he's in in this particular passionate mode of orality here uh-huh. where he's writing as though he's he's doing a sermon yeah to to revive people to faith and it, it's a lot of political speeches are like that too you're going to get exaggeration and hyperbole and a lot of, a lot of really strong concrete language here which isn't always going to be the most sophisticated or the most nuanced and that's mm. that's the way it is and we can Use this concept of genre to say that's that's what's going on here.
0: Would that be a fair way to uh, Reconcile what we're reading in these verses with the experiences that people are having particularly ones who are wrestling with big questions Right,
1: and I think what we don't want to do is is people who d- Say who don't have all the answers to say oh somehow you have less faith or you're an ap- even apostate I mean that's not at all appropriate, right? I think anyone who has love for God and for neighbor will have some bit of patience and grace and forbearance with people who are coming from a very very different place from them and God is speaking to them
0: according to their language which you may not be plain to you right right and I do think it's worth mentioning that even though Nephi himself didn't have all the answers even though we don't have all the answers what we do know about Nephi's story this being the end of it is that things ultimately did work out for Nephi things that you know, ultimately will work out for him and his people, even though, you know, I mean, we know how the Book of Mormon ends, right. people are going to be destroyed. But as we, uh, as we read before, you know, they're not going to be silenced, they're going to be exalted. Mm-hmm. Nephi, you know, no doubt in my mind that he's going to receive eternal life. And I think one of the things that Nephi wanted to drive home and one of the things that we can learn from his story is that. Inasmuch as much as we make an effort to do the best that we can with what we've got, we're going to be okay, and that seems to be the big message of Second of uh, Second Nephi 31, which talks about the doctrine of Christ, which is that if we endure to the end, in other words, if we persist in our lives doing the best we can to continually repent, we will have eternal life, and we will be guided by you know by our Father in heaven. So I, I do think that is a I suppose a fair interpretation of what Nephi may have been saying there and you know through all the hyperbole right yeah that's all I wanted to say about those two verses I may have had something okay I I think the last thing I want to say is about uh, I mean it's what the come follow me manual opens with I really like uh, chapter 33 and these are Nephi's last words here It opens with these words. For thus the Lord hath commanded me, and I must obey. Now, Derek, you've already masterfully pointed out what uh, Nephi has gone through his entire life and how we should be reading all these words. Nephi's life has been one riddled with traumatic experiences. Like between the first time he's uttered words similar to this to the last time he's writing them, the fact that he was able to go through all of that physical, emotional, and spiritual trauma and still be able to say in effect what he said back in 1 Nephi 3-7 is nothing short of remarkable. And I feel there is a lesson to be learned there about Nephi's commitment to obedience throughout his life, even in the midst of all that trauma. I think the fact that he was able to do it um, should speak volumes to people on the margins. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not saying everybody should be able to do so just because Nephi did it. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that it is possible and that the fact that Nephi has been able to endure all this trauma and in essence, preserve what kind of became the hallmark of his ministry, his obedience to God, should be something that inspires all of us, you know, especially those of us on the margins, though, because we will endure trauma. We will endure a lot of. Physical or sorry emotional and spiritual and perhaps even physical trauma as we go throughout our membership in the church Our spiritual journeys or just in general our sojourn in mortality but the fact that nephi was able to Preserve what was in essence a hallmark of his personality should give hope to everybody on the margins that we can that we can do it too
1: hmm I do want to add though a sort of a complicating factor is that a lot of what happened in nephi's lifetime and maybe even some of his choices set up the Nephites and the Lamanites for a long-term pattern of cyclic hostility. Mm-hmm. I think if, if the Lamanites and the Nephites in, in the first generation had made some very different choices, a lot of this stuff could have been prevented, and the whole Book of Mormon would have been like 4th Nephi, <laughs> which maybe that's not, would have been very helpful to us.
0: about to say, all those chapters, any time there's peace, <laughs> we get like one verse, or one <laughs> book, yeah. You know what I'm saying, Jess? That's all we get. And I just I
1: think I I just the the, the book of the, if you look at the narrative arc of the Book of Mormon, it is a tragedy. And we yeah. should we should note that 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 there's stuff that happened here that set them up for tragedy later. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something to be mourned, really. Yeah. It's definitely definitely a loss. I have a, quite a bit to say about 2 Nephi 32 verse 7, so let me just get started on that. So, this is um, 32 verse 7. And now I, Nephi, cannot say more. The Spirit stoppeth mine utterance, and I am left to mourn because of the unbelief, and the wickedness, and the ignorance, and the stiff neckedness of men. For they will not search knowledge, nor understand great knowledge, when it is given unto them in plainness, even as plain as word can be. I think he's saying something that is an, a, an eternal truth here. That in every generation, of God's covenant people, there's going to be people who don't want to hear anything new. Mm-hmm. That they don't want to search for any new knowledge. They think they already have everything. Um, they also think that the th- they're in the uh, sort of, of my three windows, they're in the fundamentalist window. of Like, we're looking out this plane window. We see everything exactly the way it is. We don't need any updates. Mm-hmm. We've got it all. We're all right. set. You know, that's what they say here in New England. We're all set. <laughs> have you noticed that? Yeah. So what I want to say about the stiff-neckedness is the, the literal image here is you, someone off to your side is crying out in, for help or for compassion or pity, and your neck, you're not even willing to turn your neck over to the side to look upon them. That's what stiff-neckedness means, is, is mm. you're not willing to even turn your neck to, he, to attend to the cries of your neighbor. That's I think that's just an awful sin and a great mm. word for it. Yeah. Right? And let's talk about the root of some of this stiff-neckedness because th- that's going to happen to all of us. I'm not saying it's just certain people in the church. Me too. I'm going to be guilty of that as well, and I think we should all think about where we're stiff-neckednesses are. And when I think about what's been going on in the church, especially around... Changes in terms of race, changes in terms of women, changes in terms of LGBTQ issues—we're in a process with all three of those, and uh, and it's not finished with any of them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are are resistant to to change on these issues, and I'm like, what's behind that? And I this gets back to something I said either last week or week the before about as a theologian, I want to talk about these things in in sort of a larger structure. And I typically try to analyze our faith in terms of the categories of narrative and relationship, rather than so much in terms of the categories of doctrine and policy. A lot of people wanna talk about our faith as doctrine and policy, and I, I get it, right? There's doctrine and there's policy. But for me, as a biblical scholar, I look at issues around Where's the narrative of our salvation journey? How's God leading us through this story? And what's the power of this story to change lives and to forge new relationships? And a lot of things under that framework Become very clear because that's really what the biblical language is. It's about narratives and it's about relationships. You don't see a lot of wrestling in the New Testament about oh, is that doctrine or is it policy or mm-hmm. is it folklore? Can it be changed or not? Can doctrine change? When can policy change? Like, you don't have those type of discussions in that language. Right? Is it's you? We use other language. I think part of it is we've got a lot of corporate businessmen in the in the in the LDS world. And they talk about policy. They talk, that's because that's their job. And policy really isn't even a biblical word. Um, it appears in the King James version just once in in Daniel eight, but that's not even what it means. In that case, it's translating a word, a Hebrew word that means skill or insight. And then in context, it's it's treachery. But other than that usage, there's no discussion of policy in the King James. And Like I said, let's take a major thing that now people would say is a policy change. That's the inclusion of the Gentiles mm-hmm. And I want to reanalyze that not in terms of doctrine and policy but in terms of narrative and relationship because We've got this story of hope that God has provided for the people of Israel right mm-hmm. one of restoration one of renewal of the whole planet And the gentiles were grafted in that's the language. They didn't say whoops doctrine changed. They said The gentiles were grafted into the story of the people of israel I think that's just a beautiful way of framing. That's exactly what happens in Romans 11 you've got this grafting in language. Mm. and I think there's a sense in which um Our 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 black friends and neighbors are beginning to be grafted into the story that that non-black saints in the church have. I mean, that process is not completed. We've got more work to do, but we've got already the solid basis for grafting in all ethnicities and all races into Christ. And we should have had that back in in uh, you know in Galatians, right? Right. But the people. My point is that the people in the New Testament didn't fret and worry about whether the inclusion of the Gentiles was doctrine or policy or whether what it could change. They just marveled at the unfolding of the narrative arc of salvation history and the effect it had on relationships because that's the whole point of Paul. Is like, how does this change our daily life together? And it focuses then on the renewed relationships between God and fellow humans. And in many ways, if you look at what they really did... They included the Gentiles first because the spirit was already working among them and they just showed up and like you're here And then they made sense of it afterward And I think that's almost backwards from looking at it from a doctrine and policy thing Where you have to figure out the doctrinal policy first and then include mm. And I think the spirit is is beginning to graft in LGBTQ people Before we have fully made sense of it mm. and I wanna talk about this. People might say, well, Derek, you're just being a, like a liberal whatever weirdo. I'm like, no, my focus on narrative and relationship is the orthodox position of all the scriptures. Yes, there's the word doctrine there, but just because I'm focusing on those things doesn't mean that I support false doctrine. In fact, I am anti-false doctrine, and I'm not like lenient on false doctrine at all. I I think we should seriously eradicate it. and li- my biggest example of this is of course Galatians mm-hmm. Because Galatians probably among any New Testament document is the one that most forcefully condemns false doctrine you've got in Galatians chapter 1 this I This is my own paraphrase that says look anyone who preaches a different gospel. Let him be con- condemned to hell mm. And in Galatians chapter 5, he says, look, if you're so obsessed about circumcision, if you think circumcision is so required and it's, it's this eternal covenant, if you're so obsessed about circumcision, well, I hope you go the whole way and cut your whole penis off. That's literally <laughs> what he's saying.
0: And don't forget Galatians 2, where right. he literally stands up to the, to exactly. the head apostle of the church yes. like against th- his bigotry.
1: That's his view of false doctrine. It is so important to root out false doctrine that no one— is is exempt from that. And we talked a little bit about this last week, I think, um, in terms of holding people in the church accountable. Right. Right, That no one, we should not have partiality or favoritism when it comes out to rooting false doctrine. Even Correct. our best be- beloved people, like Brigham Young, he's going to have false doctrine. Yep. Um, and, you know, we need to, to, to think about that. And where am I going with this? Okay. <laughs> and this gets back to, let's talk about, false doctrine and, and this new handbook change about the definition of apostasy because people have noticed that the definition of apostasy has now been changed and it includes now the word policy and it says something like anyone who has open and defiant public opposition to the doctrines or the policies of the church now counts as an apostate and policy wasn't in there before. Mm-hmm. So there was more room to crit- critique policy earlier apparently and now, yeah. and that's why I think that I'm not, a, I, I'm, I know I'm not an apostate because what I'm saying isn't really a lot about the, the formal doctrine or about the policy, it's about where the narrative is moving through the spirit. And what kind of new relationships it's forming? That's almost everything I say, which is completely exempt from this definition of of apostasy, because I'm not really talking about the details of the policy or the or the the sort of systematic doctrine that people are doing this. And let me just say one more thing about circumcision, because I think there's a there's a good parallel here, in that um, the argument was that circumcision is necessary for salvation. If you have um, in genesis 17 when circumcision was introduced to abraham uh big surprise whoops talk about if you love god you're going to be willing to be surprised Mm -hmm. abraham was willing to love god enough that he's going to be surprised by oh you want me to cut that okay i'll do it (laughs) that's that's a big surprise Mm. but it says in genesis 17 that this circumcision is an eternal covenant It is what we would call a saving ordinance to use an anachronistic term it is a an eternal covenant so the people in the first century had a very valid case to make that says look this is this is this is policy this is doctrine this cannot change because it says eternal berit olam an eternal covenant and um, Paul just flipped that whole argument on its head in Romans chapter 4 when he said look Abraham was justified by faith Before he was circumcised Mm -hmm. as an uncircumcised Gentile. He came by faith faith in Christ So the whole point of this is Christ The whole point is to to lead us to Christ and Christ is what saves us Mm -hmm. and I think um, It's just for more information about the inclusion of the Gentiles you can look at like Romans 11 Romans 15 all of Galatians, but especially Galatians 2 and then Ephesians 2 you've got this dividing wall of hostility being broken down in Christ between mm-hmm. these ethnicities And then of course you've got the narrative in Acts 10 through 15 from Cornelius's inclusion yeah. in Acts 10 to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 very marvelously done and this supports what I'm saying about we should We should conceptualize our faith, not just in these wooden categories of doctrine and policy and what can be changed and what's binding and what's not, but being open to this really living relationship with God that moves us through a narrative that results in a changed relationship with people. And that's all I'm going to say for right now. Other than this, what I'm saying is a story of hope. And that's one of the words that Nephi used to the perfect brightness of hope. <laughs> well done, Derek. So thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. Great stuff. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to have to go back and listen back to this because, you know, we, we've talked briefly about this before, this idea of what's the narrative arc, what's the narrative bringing us to salvation as opposed to what the doctrine and the policy is, and I think that might be the the best explanation you've given of it. Like, you've mentioned it in bits and pieces before, but, like, that was a much more comprehensive uh, description of what you've been saying this entire time, with regard to, you know, your tendency to be against the language of doctrine and policy, or why people shouldn't be worried about that. So, thank you for taking the time to share that, and thanks for, you know, obviously, yeah, thanks it for back listening. To what is in here in the scriptures? I have nothing else for the come follow me, and if you don't have anything, I don't have anything else. Sweet, surprisingly. All right, y- I'm proud of you, Derek. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we get into housekeeping, just wanted to. Let you guys know about how Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is a Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lectures series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcastnetwork. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcastnetwork. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at
1: beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And thank you guys by the way for uh, responding to our most recent request for how you guys have uh found us. Like we hit a milestone this past week. We've hit over 500 followers on Facebook, which is really cool. Um and you know, it's just been really nice to hear how you guys have been finding us, how you guys have uh been enjoying the podcast, what you guys have been uh, you know really enjoying from it and gaining from it. It really means a lot to us to know that it has meant a lot to you guys, because this work is something we take very seriously. It's something we take a lot of pleasure in, and uh, to know that it's bringing joy to other people, that it's bringing, you know, all kinds of good things to other people, really means the word to us. Like we do this anyway, yeah. Like, but the <laughs> fact that so many we're able to include so many people into our conversations and so many other people into this work that we're doing and this community that we're building. That has really made it all the all the more worthwhile. So thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. We've had we've have over five hundred likes on Facebook. Um, we have got a lot of five star reviews. I think sharing this podcast with others is one of those small and simple things that can change the course of history, and really, uh, you know, bring great things to pass. You never know what life you can change or what direction the course of the church or uh, and marginalized people in the church. Can change just based on because uh, you know the 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 future apostles and prophet of the church they could be listening to us right now.
0: Yeah, because of y'all. Because of y'all, yes. <laughs> like basically, we're blowing up because you guys are showing up. Wow, that's a good point.
1: Yes, so now I have to have a good point, point. and here's what I'm going to say: <laughs> is a you, lot of you're always have good points, Derek. You always have good points. <laughs> Thanks. A lot of people say, Oh, I wish I had a time machine to go in back into the past and change just a small detail and, and see those, see those, so change a small detail in the past so I can change the present. Well, what I'm telling you today is you can change the present today in order to change the future. You can have a big effect on the future. Imagine coming back in time to this point right now and saying, Look, I can, I can be present with someone who's in a marginalized position and, and change their life. I can share this podcast. I can share the, Id- even if you don't share the podcast, you can take these ideas and share them in your classes, share them with your families. Cause there's a lot of people who won't listen to the podcast who will listen to you. Yeah. And that's the number one thing you can do to amplify our voices is, is, is take what you've learned and let it change your life and let it change the life of everyone around you because that's really Christ.
0: Hmm. All right. There's nothing else. That's it. It's all right. It's been a pleasure, guys. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye.